Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Element. One of the things we're about to roll into is summertime. And what happens then? You're sweating. It's hot out there. And you know what people are not doing? I feel like we've really evolved in sports nutrition, performance nutrition. We're fueling better. But I have seen where people have forgotten that there's this thing called salt. And you have to replace the salt if you're going hard in the paint. Yeah. And I mean, people are outdoors doing these long efforts. We obviously are out on our mountain bikes every weekend and it's a big, we notice a huge difference when it gets hot and we really have to double down on making sure we're getting enough salt. Yeah. I think those people in the sort of endurance communities are looking at electrolytes, they're looking at essential salts, but sometimes as the recreational athlete goes out, it doesn't really matter day to day. I'm probably getting some salt, I'm salting my food, but I can't tell you what a performance difference it'll make. Your recovery will feel better. Your tissues will feel better. You are a bioelectrical machine. That's who you are. You know what runs that whole system? Salt. It, say it with me now. Salt. Salt. So try supplementing with one you know, element pack when your normal water after training. I guarantee you're going to recover better and feel better. And it's so tasty. It's so tasty. It's so tasty. Right now, if you order through our link, you get a free sample pack with all of Element's flavors. Go to drinkelement.com slash TRS. Do it. This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Sleep Me. Look, we are rolling into summer and that means... It's going to be a sweaty time where you cannot fall asleep and your sleep sucks because you are drowning in your own sweat. I mean, look, here's the deal. Kelly is the hottest sleeper in the no known idea. universe, especially no his legs. His legs get so hot. They're I don't know like if you radiating. Know this, but my stems have a high surface to volume <laughs> ratio. But really, when he was able to add Sleep Me and the Doc Pro into his life, it really changed everything from a sleep perspective because he would often find himself waking up in the night and having to cast all the covers off of his body because he was so hot. Don't touch and me, And it was woman. really disruptive for his sleep. And when he got the original Chili Pad and now has a Doc Pro, it really changed the quality of his it's sleep. It's so powerful. And I tell you, one of the cool things is on the app, I said it, I get into bed right now. It's 95. It's warm and cozy. It's so warm. Because we are still sort of on that shoulder season. Then after like 20 minutes, it drops down to where I'm currently sleeping. And it is cold and I wake up and I feel great. And then guess what? It warms back up in the morning. Don't use an alarm anymore because it's 6.30 in the morning. It starts to warm back up. And my body says, oh, no. (laughs) It's time to start the day. I feel so much better sleeping cold. You can see the proof in my sleep tracking. And I, man, I tell you what, people, do not mess about. Start managing the temperature of your bed. Have your life changed. Especially as we head into summer. Head over to sleep.me slash TRS to learn more and save on the purchase of any new Cube or Doc Pro sleep system. So go to sleep.me slash TRS to take advantage of our exclusive discount and wake up refreshed every day, just like Kelly. On this episode of the Ready State Podcast, we are delighted to welcome our friend Dave Kalina. Dave is the founder and CEO of O2 Hydration, an Inc. 5000 beverage brand, and the official sports drink of the CrossFit Games. A former corporate strategist, Dave cut his entrepreneurial teeth while helping open a nonprofit charter high school in Columbus, Ohio. He then left the office life to coach CrossFit and create a healthier hydration drink, eventually launching O2 from the trunk of Ohio's hardest working Prius in 2014. Dave is a graduate of The Ohio State University, a certified CrossFit coach, Krav Maga black belt, and the marketing mind behind 2020's best beverage marketing campaign of the year. He lives in Boulder, Colorado, and when he's not teaching business classes part-time at CU Boulder, he's out riding his Harley and howling at the moon. He's also a savage, savage VO2 maker. What do you mean by VO2 maker? I mean, look, we got to know Dave through his company, O2. And what I you're going to hear here is definitely the entrepreneurial experience and it's up and downs. I love that he's currently teaching in Boulder, like in real time, helping young kids understand the trials and tribulations of being an, an entrepreneur. And sometimes the V stands for vodka and O2 because- Oh, VO2, I got v- it. VO2. I was slow on Because that you're one. suffering as an entrepreneur. You know, what's great is we're also going to talk about 
sort of big soda and sponsorship of athletes. We talk about his choice of aluminum cans and sports drinks. This is a really interesting conversation. Yeah, I agree. And it was great to connect with him on, you know, being joint entrepreneurs. We have so much in common with him in terms of our journey and trajectory. Work pain tolerance. Work pain tolerance and, you know, successes and failures. So I think we got a lot covered in a short amount of time. And you guys are going to enjoy it. I like to be entertained in my mouth sometimes. And O2 is a fantastic way to do that. Enjoy our conversation with Dave Kalina. Dave, welcome to the Ready State Podcast. It's great to see you, my friend. How are you? Hey, it's good to see you guys too. I'm doing well. How are you doing? We're great. Last time I saw you, it's 100 degrees. You were walking around the CrossFit Games saving people's lives. I think this is literally the last time I ran into you. And you gave me the dopest wolf shirt with O2. And I came back home and people were like, what happened to you? I'm like, I went to Wisconsin. (laughs) I just like, I, you know, I I got taken care of. It's great to see you again. I also have the wolf tank top version. I have the tank top version and it's an amazing shirt. That is my favorite. Where are you coming, talking to us from right now? Boulder, Colorado. Yes. Did you know that's where I grew up? I did actually. Kelly shared that with me. I'm like, you guys still got some family here. Yeah. Hey to Boulder. Hey to Boulder. What's up, Boulder? Is O2 headquartered in Boulder? You know, we are technically headquartered in Columbus, Ohio, which is where I started the company out of my car way back when, but we've always been remote. So I live in Boulder. I got team members here. I got team members back in Ohio, team members on the West Coast, East Coast. We're all over the place. That's crazy. And you're currently also teaching at the business school at Boulder. Is that right? Dude, semester just wrapped Ooh. up. I'm stoked. Okay, we're going to yeah. have to get to that. But Yeah, nothing like two jobs. I really want to ask a lot of questions about that, actually. But before we get to that, I'm just going to go back in time to what you just said, which was you started O2 yeah. out of the back of your car. And Is that I how even, most uh, like, like revolutionary well, I mean, brands start? Well, I mean, think about uh, of Specialized, right? That's true. Like, like Mike Sinyard of Specialized, who we also had on our podcast. He's the CEO, founder of Specialized. Uh-huh. He started Specialized by selling bike parts out of the back of his car. So, I mean, out of his bike. You know, mm-hmm. Yeah, out, off of his bike, actually. And then I think a car. But anyway, please give us the backstory. How did you start O2, a company which is near and dear to our heart? Yeah, well, thank you. So it it's a lot less glamorous than it sounds, <laughs> the whole out of the car thing. But... I spent the first five years of my career in corporate strategy at a large Fortune 100 financial services company in Columbus, which is where I went to school. And I was happy but not ecstatic there. And about three years into that five-year tenure, I actually was a founding member of a private nonprofit charter high school in Columbus called Cristo Rey. And so that effectively became my night job for about two and a half years. And I still had this pretty demanding day job. And I was, you know, mid to late 20s at the time, had a pretty active, healthy-ish lifestyle and found myself fueling this around the clock work with just a tremendous amount of, you know, unhealthy sports drinks. And so coming out of the school project, that was a really gratifying feeling. That was like the first time where I'd actually built something that wasn't just a PowerPoint. And as an aside on that school, we actually are celebrating our 10-year anniversary this month, which is super cool. That kind of caught a bug for building stuff. And so like a lot of first-time entrepreneurs, I decided to scratch my own itch and look for something that I wish existed, a healthier version of all the Gatorade and Powerade that I was sucking down, but I just couldn't find it. So I said, you know what? I'll make it myself. How hard can that be? And and those were my famous last words. So I don't know. I don't know a ton about the beverage business, but I know a little bit. About I know the enough beverage. to stay away yeah, from. Yeah, I know enough to stay away from it, and I yeah, know that it is smart. That's all you yeah, need to it know. Is really, a very difficult, very competitive. You must have known it this is. going into it, being you know having a business background. One would think. But do you think this sort of? I mean, you said you'd been eating, drinking unhealthy sports drinks, and you know, were you just looking at the market and there was nothing available that sort of fit the need you have? So ultimately, you were trying yeah. to solve a problem, which is the greatest way to start a business. Yeah, and I think that the naivety that a lot of entrepreneurs have going into something is probably a good thing, because if I knew now <laughs> what I what I wish I would have known then, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation because it is tough. It's really hard to compete in this space. You should start a stretching business instead. (laughs) Yeah, perfect. I'm in, let's go. Anything but CPG. But it's tough, especially when you don't have much money behind you. You don't have a special sort of angle. I was a little naive in thinking, look, if I just build the best product humanly Mm. possible, 
which I still to this day truly think that we have with O2. If I just build the best product possible, then the rest will take care of itself. And unfortunately, in our space, food and beverage, the best product isn't always the product that wins. You know, a lot of times it's the best marketing that wins. And it's taken me a while to really fully accept that and start to hone mine and my team's marketing skills. I don't know. Mountain Dew Extreme Strawberry Vomit Explosion yeah, but is I mean, really tasty. Yeah. I mean, I say I, I would say we relate to that so much as well, though, in our own space. I mean, I think, mm -hmm. you know, we know and have known we have a good product and we know that it is led by the best. Right. But oftentimes... Yep. The biggest challenge for us is the marketing piece. Also, because like yeah, you, we totally. started a business to solve a problem and we've learned a lot about marketing, but it certainly wasn't our area of expertise mm -hmm. at all. And yep. on top of it, we don't really enjoy that part of it. Mm -hmm. Right. Totally. <laughs> so it's really hard. Yeah. I get it. So can you paint more of a picture for us when you say you started this out of the back of your car? You know, you're making beverages. So are you you know, using your home kitchen as a lab to try recipes or how are you actually making Close. Pretty close. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about like yeah. create the sort of visual picture of like what you're actually doing at this point to yeah. get this going. Like I said, a lot less glamorous than people think. So I didn't want to fully leave my pretty comfy, cushy day job without having a pretty good idea that I could make something worth leaving my day job for, if that makes sense. So I partnered with a physician, a guy named Dr. Dan Kim. Uh, he was and still is a medical doctor at Ohio State's Hospital. And he and I developed a formulation that on paper sounded like exactly what we wanted. Very low sugar, only one gram of sugar, 2x the electrolytes as Gatorade, nothing artificial, a light, clean taste, and super oxygenated because Dan, the doctor, came across some really compelling research that showed the accelerating effects of ingested oxygen on the liver's metabolism and subsequently the body's recovery time. And so we said, okay, that's great. Like, how do we take this from on paper to put it inside of a container and make it drinkable? I came from a strategy background. I didn't know the first thing about CPG. And Dan was a doctor, not a food scientist. No, no, I, I think it goes step one, concept, step three, profit, right? <laughs> yes. It's, I'm still waiting for that step three, man. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. But we ended up calling a bunch of people in the industry who all basically laughed at two kids with no background in food and beverage and wanting to make this pretty different product. And so we said, screw it. We'll just kind of come up with a prototype on our own. And so we ended up purchasing a used bar gun from a restaurant supply store in Columbus. We swapped out the tank of CO2 that it came with, with a tank of O2 that Dan may or may not have gotten from the hospital. <laughs> and we bought some ingredients on Amazon, just some flavoring and you know salts, stuff like that. And we whipped it all together and we had a prototype. And so the first prototype that we made, you know, we bottled it ourselves, we labeled it That's ourselves, incredible. and we started, started selling it to friends and family and word spread. And before we knew it, the Ohio State men's basketball team was requesting it by the case even though that prototype tasted terrible. Everyone was like, man, this is this tastes like salt water, but this actually works. And so at that point, I was like, okay, we can fix the taste problem if we can get some professionals to, to help us out here. We got the function down. This is now worth leaving my day job for, which is what I did. Wait, wait, okay. what flavor was the original? Yeah, what was it? Oh, man, it was like a, I don't know, generic lemon type flavor, citrusy. Citrus Amazon lemon. <laughs> Tried it original. Like, yes, exactly. Whatever citrusy flavor we could order on Amazon is what it was. That's right. So That's one right. of the things that I think you have done, which is so revolutionary in this sports drink market, is put all of your drinks in aluminum cans versus in plastic yeah, bottles. And that's mm -hmm. one of the reasons that we've been huge fans of what you're doing is... Let me, let me break yeah. it for people. There are plenty of drinks in cans, but one of your products is water, as still water, mineral water yeah. that's in a can. That's really where. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, if you could just talk a little bit about that decision, what motivated it, why it's different from what's out there, because, you know, mm -hmm. we get it. We're fans. But tell us a little bit more about the thinking there and the process. Yeah. I mean, we're, I guess, sort of a point of differentiation. We're a sports drink in a can, and there are not a lot of sports drink in cans out there. 
the primary driver of that today is that we are a completely carbon neutral company and we're certified carbon neutral or climate neutral. And that's something we're really proud of. And that touches everything from how we ship our products, how we offset the carbon associated with shipping our products to what we package in. I've been getting pressure to move to plastic bottles from various sources, it feels like, since day one. But that's not something that we would consider because plastic is plastic and aluminum cans. Let me ask you this. Yeah. I just feel like I want to backtrack. You said sports drink. Define what you mean when you think the difference between energy drink and sports drink. Because I think that's, you brought up a really good point. Like this is very much like we use this as a hydration beverage, right? Mm -hmm. And and Mm -hmm. we'll talk about VO2 and all the fun things that I've been able to do with these, you know, O2 slushies I make. But what do you mean by hydration drink? Because I think you brought up something that I wasn't thinking about versus energy drink. Like, what does that mean? Yep. So fundamentally, the core of O2 is hydration. You know, we have four flavored products, two of which have caffeine, but two of which don't. And all four of those flavored products have, again, twice the electrolytes as Gatorade, but only one gram of sugar. And then we also have a hydration mix that I can't remember if we've shared this with you guys. It's basically an electrolyte drink mix like all of them. And ours has a taste profile that people love. And then we have the water. So the common theme across all of our products is around hydration. And it just so happens that two of those drinks have about 100 milligrams of caffeine, which is like a cup of coffee. How do we get to the point where the standard is these like high sugar drinks served in plastic bottles? I mean, honestly, as a parent and a parent of an athletic kid, it's like my worst nightmare, but still happens. I mean, we were just mm-hmm. at our kids, you know, end of the season swim meet last Saturday and parents were called upon to bring drinks. And that wasn't what mm-hmm. we were called upon to bring, but there were some coolers there filled still to this day. I'm like, wow, it's 2023 mm-hmm. coolers filled with all plastic bottles, single use bottles of water red and, and red Gatorade. And my, I'm scratching mm-hmm. my head because I'm like, man, I feel like we've been talking about this for like 20 years that A, you yeah. know, Gatorade is sugar water and then B, single use plastic bottles are A, definitely not yep. okay. So how do we get to this point and why is it still so pervasive? It's tough, man. I mean, I, you know, I guess one one deep concern that I've had about O2 for a while is that we may have just been a little bit ahead of our time. And, and I, you know, I say that with a lot of humility and I don't think that's going to be the case, but I'm stunned that in 2023, you know, you're telling me that, but at the same time, I'm not totally surprised. I think that there's so much legacy in the Gatorade brand and the Powerade brand and just sports drinks in general. It's almost been burned into consumers' minds that sports drinks equal high sugar plastic bottles. And for a while, there hasn't been a lot of choice in that industry. It's basically, do I want Gatorade or Powerade or now Body Armor, which is the same stuff, just you know, 45 grams of sugar versus 60, right? So it's just high sugar plastic bottle, what flavor do you want? And I think that within the next three to five years, I would like to think that there's going to be a pretty meaningful shift as some stigma starts to hit you know, plastic and the way that it should. I would hope that in three to five years, if somebody bought a bunch of red Gatorade to a sports game, they're kind of looked at a little funny or feeling bad about it. But I think that it just comes down to a lack of options over the course of time. Now, there's more options now and O2 is definitely an option. But our challenge is making people aware that this option exists. And it's tough to do that sometimes. Right. Because, I mean, you can still just go to Costco now and buy flats of, right? You can buy flats of Gatorade and, you know, there's a cost efficiency there and, you know, you can see, but you're right. I mean, if I just think about like my own marketplaces and at least I have other ideas and other options, but if you just think about the average parent, they're like, okay, well, I've been tasked with providing these drinks. This is an athletic event. I've learned over the years that it's supposed to be this red sugar water and here I can get it for cheap at Costco, right? I mean, you can kind of see the the thing, but it is interesting because I mean, I don't know how you can be on social media without like seeing the giant plastic island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and, Mm -hmm. you know, microplastics and the gyre. I don't know. So it is interesting that there's still... I think people are aware, but it hasn't. Particularly in the water. I mean, I just. Yeah, the water. Let's just take sports drinks aside. 
just those single-use plastic water bottles mm-hmm. and the aluminum, yes, it can be more expensive to, you have to use it again, it takes some energy, but it's 100% reusable, that aluminum. Right, right. Something like 80% of aluminum has been in circulation the past 100 years. Holy it's crazy. I had no idea. Um, one of the reasons that I think Juliet and I, and I don't know if we've ever talked about this, about our cigarette sponsorship, but- <laughs> Dave, I know you and I have (laughs) talked in the past about trying to create alternatives for athletes to move away from big sugar, water, energy drink, gas station, penis pills, Mm -hmm. these Mm -hmm. energy drinks. Lisa just gave me a look like, oh, wow, okay, we're going there. Mark that time because that's what they are, these crazy drinks that people have. But a lot of athletes struggle to make ends meet. And will accept, yeah, right, because it's their livelihood, the support. And right. I want to just point out for a right. second that, in the view of hypocrisy here, we understand where that is. Juliet and I raced yeah. and met at the Camel Whitewater World Championships in Chile, which was sponsored by Camel South Africa in 2020. Oh, how funny! Or 20, 2000. 2000. Yeah. And so, I mean, we took that big cigarette money and was like, "Let's we'll go mm-hmm. race and make this case." But mm-hmm. we understand that that wasn't mm-hmm. a great thing. Although being sponsored by a cigarette company in this age, it's pretty dope. <laughs> it's pretty metal. It's kind of metal. It's, it's metal. It's and metal. it definitely says about how that Julie and I both turned 50 this year. But one of the, the things that O2 is trying to do is create an alternative marketplace for those athletes. Because right now, if you, there's no other solution. I mean, how do you get sponsored? Mm-hmm. How do you make a living? Could you? Is that on your mind? Are you aware of that? And how's that going? Definitely aware of that. I mean, it's tough, man. My heart goes out to athletes, particularly in the CrossFit field, which is where we're probably most dominant as a brand, because you know it's really, really tough to monetize your professionalism as an athlete. And, and I know, you know a few of them do it, but most of them don't. And with the brands that are most prominent in our space, you know, there's, there's not a lot of cash to go around to a bunch of different athletes. And I think that as those brands grow, O2 being one of them, it's definitely something that, you know, should grow with the brand. But boy, it's tough to compete with like, I don't know, Monster, right? In terms of their ability to shell out tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars to just a handful of athletes when our marketing budget is one ten thousandth of (laughs) theirs. So it's a problem. Yeah. I mean, we had a, we learned that even outside of the CrossFit space, when you're looking at Olympians and, you know, people who are, are more recreational type yeah. athletes, that it's something mm-hmm. like thirty to $40,000 is all they actually need a year to not mm-hmm. have to have mm-hmm. a job and train mm-hmm. for the Olympics. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, you, know, you mm-hmm. think everybody thinks of these huge athletes that are making massive amounts of money. But I mean, you're right. The CrossFit space is just a microcosm of what happens in all athletics, right? There's always going to be a few right. athletes who get fabulously wealthy and then a ton of athletes who literally can't That's make right. it, including Olympians who need to, you know, work at Home Depot or have other jobs right. in order to actually train to be Olympians. Right. We became O2 aware because someone in the goodness of the heart sent us. <laughs> a case of O2 and it was lime O2 and it was, I think no baby pre pandemic. And all of a sudden it just showed uh-huh. up with no strings attached said, Hey, you're in our nice. space. Give this a shot. And I remember being like, I love this. this yeah. Is was so that, good. was that you or was that someone else? Okay. I mean, I thought it was you directly, but I'm sure that was me. Yeah. <laughs> tell us, <laughs> and, tell us. And there can... was no caffeine, which is a big deal for me because yeah. sometimes I like, look, I, we love element. We love, a drinking water and I love coffee, but yeah. sometimes, as I say, I just want to be entertained in my mouth. Well, the other thing too, is that we have like, <laughs> we have a fridge in our garage and we have a drink fridge in our house and whatever drinks we have around, if they're in a can, they will be drank by our kids and their friends and the teenagers nice. around. Right. And so, so we want it to be something we feel good about saying, okay, if any yeah, kid totally. comes into our garage and opens our garage fridge and it's full of O2, like we feel good about mm-hmm. any kid taking it. Anyway, tell us the backstory awesome. of, you know, just peppering it out there in the world. How did you get into the CrossFit space as sort of your first test market, if that's even the case? Dude, that's a, those stories go hand in hand. So after I left my day job, I started training pretty intensively in a type of martial arts and self-defense called Krav Maga. And I was doing that, I don't know, probably two to three classes a night for a long time. 
And as I started to get more and more into that, I started to coach Krav Maga. And the gym that I was coaching at, the studio that I was coaching at, also had a CrossFit gym attached to it. And so I was, you know, some of the Krav Maga coaches also coached CrossFit. And, you know, there was a little bit of cross-pollination there. And so I was getting a lot of pressure to try CrossFit. <laughs> but I thought, you know, oh my God, these CrossFit people Just are nuts, sip, right? Throwing barbells around all the time, you know, all the while I'm getting punched in the face on a regular basis. But eventually I did. And I loved it. And as part of that entry into CrossFit, somebody told me about this guy on YouTube who was doing all this mobility stuff called Mobility Wad. And this was like 2013, maybe 2012, 2013, something like that. And so I developed a routine where most mornings I'd spend 10 minutes, you know, watching Kelly do a couch stretch and suffering through it while he did on YouTube. And so I've been a huge, K-Star and now J-Star fan for a while. And 2014 is when I first started coaching CrossFit. And that also is when, I guess, V1 of O2 launched. And so that became sort of our entry point into the CrossFit market. You know, I, I didn't have a ton of retailers lined up. I didn't have any retailers lined up for O2. We had just enough money to pay me as the only full-time employee, 2000 bucks a month. And we didn't have anyone else doing the work. (laughs) Yeah, just murdering it, right? And so I did what any scrappy entrepreneur would do, which is beg my friends who own gyms to start selling our product. And they did initially as a favor to me, but turned out it did really, really well in that environment. And that's how we we got our, you know, our start in CrossFit. So year one, we ended up selling in 50-ish CrossFit gyms in Ohio. And now we're in, you know, 2,500 gyms across the country, give or take. Hey, Ready State listeners, if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. This episode of the Ready State podcast is brought to you by Momentus. I want to talk today about something that happens during periods of stress, periods of injury and surgery when you're not moving very much. We see that those times people are losing a lot of weight and they lose a lot of lean muscle mass and they don't have to. Yeah. I mean, we actually have a kid in our neighborhood who broke his back in a skiing accident and thankfully he's okay, but it's been three weeks and he's already lost, what, 20 pounds? He says down 20 pounds. So one of the things that we know can make a big difference during time of inactivity. So if this is, you know, you're about to go do something where you can't move or injury surgery, same thing, right? I just can't basically, my, my activity has dropped. Up your protein. The research is pretty good that if we can get you above one gram per pound body weight, it's an easy way to signal to keep it on. In fact, international track and field recommendations, sport recommendations, like this is from the top down to saying, hey, look, during times of injury and surgery or off times, ramp up your protein. Sometimes it's hard for people to do that. He was struggling to get his protein minimums, was discovered that Wei didn't sort of agree with him very well. He switched to a plant-based protein, which is totally fine. And find a, it turns out Momentus has great plant-based protein too. It's so good and it actually tastes great and really is easy on the stomach, especially for people who don't tolerate the whey protein as well. So go and check out Momentus Protein. We're huge fans. We drink it every day. And we are also fans of their vegetarian vegan proteins. Go to livemomentous.com slash TRS and use code TRS for 20% off your first purchase. And are you also in more traditional retail like stores and, you know, because back to my kind of Costco example, it seems like right Mm -hmm. at some point you guys are going to want to go nuclear explosion in order to be able to compete against those other brands. Yeah, we've gone into that more traditional retail environment in the past. We got a little too excited about it. And so we've subsequently pulled back. So we entered Kroger in 2019, 2018, 2019, first in about 100, 200 stores in Ohio. And we're just killing it. Like sales higher than body armor and sometimes Gatorade at a price point that was like two, three times X. So we were killing it. And then Kroger said, we're going to put you everywhere. And we were then everywhere in Kroger, the pandemic hit, we didn't have the sales staff or marketing to support it. And that, you know, a year goes by and it just was far too expensive for us to be able to continue justifying, trying to, trying to make a, a move in traditional retail all across the country. So we've pulled back. We've got a, a regional concentration in the, the Midwest and the Mid-Atlantic area in Whole Foods. 
And then we've got another regional concentration in Publix in Florida. Outside of that, there's no traditional retail, not really. One thing that we've been preparing for is this year to make a more concerted push back into traditional retail. Now that we have this revamped packaging, which I don't know if we've sent you guys some of these sweet new cans, but they're awesome and we're really proud of it. And that packaging has tested incredibly high on consumer purchase intent. So now we feel like we've got the ability to compete in retail without having a ton of marketing and sales staff dollars to put behind it. And so we're pretty excited about that opportunity later this year. You came to being an entrepreneur with a finance background, which is 100% more finance training than Juliet and I had. (laughs) (laughs) None of mine is coming handy, just so you know. (laughs) Being a CEO is its own thing. Being an entrepreneur and innovator is its own thing. You're now teaching currently or wrapping up the semester, teaching at the Boulder. And again, full disclosure, I'm a CU buff. So I can I know exactly where hey you're yo. going. Let's go buffs. Let's go buffs and um, mess them up, go see you. What is it you're teaching to these young people? Because you're in the middle of it. And I'm interested to hear what you would say. You would go back or what skills. Because I'm like, Juliet, you should have gotten an MBA. Yeah. That's what you should probably would have used for, or at that least some accounting. Really yeah. I probably could have used a little yeah, bit more training and something a, else. Yeah. I would have had to do a lot less like figuring it out, which is, I think every entrepreneur has to do that. But, yeah. and everyone's like, isn't your lawyer background so helpful in being an entrepreneur? I'm like, actually being a river guide was way more helpful in being an entrepreneur <laughs> yeah, than being a right. lawyer. That's right. See, I totally believe that. And I would believe that if you told me you had an MBA already too. Because I feel like no matter what you study and what you read, nothing can really prepare you <laughs> for what lies what lies ahead. That is true. All the all the glory of becoming an entrepreneur. What do you think your you biggest know? blind spots were as the head of we'll call it a subversive brand trying to sort of mm-hmm. change the narrative? Like where would you or how would you have done or what were your blind spots or what surprised you? Mm-hmm. Well, I definitely underestimated the importance of packaging, design, aesthetics, communication, marketing, all the stuff that we probably, you know, the three of us now feel fairly well versed in. It's the like, two yeah, of you, obviously yes. it's important what your brand name is. I definitely underestimated how important that was in our industry. You know, again, I thought, look, as long as you make just an incredible product, which we did and we have, as long as you do that, the rest will take care of itself, which it doesn't. No. <laughs> you know, you've got to do a lot to get people aware and subsequently compelled to buy your incredible product. So that was one. And then two is just the leadership lessons that come with, you know, assembling, managing, building, leading a team over time. I definitely underestimated the difficulty there. Like there's been a lot of growing pains for me personally, but all this stuff, and this is one of the first things that I tell my students at the top of the semester all these pains, these growing pains, I think it was James Clear that said something like entrepreneurship is a personal growth accelerator. (laughs) That is totally true. Totally true. So all these things that I was naive about or underestimated or wish I would have done differently have made me ultimately a better human being. And that's something I'm really grateful for. Go ahead and do that with your uh, best friend partner and let me know how that goes. I would just like to say that I was honored that you asked in part of your rebrand for me to have a look at your updated designs. Well, thank you. And that was really fun to do. I loved it. Good. And I had like a kind of gut reaction to some of them, which is exactly what you want to go to. And as a consumer, I'm definitely aware of how much I care actually about the design and Mm -hmm. how things look, even with books, like it's an ongoing joke. Kelly and I have our whole entire marriage Mm -hmm. that, you know, Kelly reads all these books that are like a certain, now he mostly is listening to audio books, but when he was reading more actual physical books, he would always read books that were like in a certain shape. And then they would have like (laughs) dragons and stuff on the front. And I'm sorry, you're talking about Game of Thrones. Well, I did end up reading and loving Song of Fire and Ice. Is that what you're denigrating? No one's read those. You know, but I mean, <laughs> as a consumer, I care a lot about just the, you know, little things like how packaging looks. Yeah, I think and we all do. anyway, it was fun to look at that new stuff. And we haven't actually seen And that was Melisandre. Okay. We haven't seen live the new can. So oh, we'd love okay, to see that. Yeah. I mean, I'm, it sounds so nerdy to say this, but I am so proud of how these turned out. And maybe it's not terribly nerdy because that was a 14 month process 
from start to finish. I don't know why it takes you all so long as the CEOs. Okay, so can I just tell you a story? It's like, get it together, guys, you know? So we, Kelly and I, come to the decision at some point that we want to rebrand Mobility Wad to the ready state. Like, we've yep. decided, we've made the mm-hmm. decision. We're like, we're going to do this, and then we're going to become yep. the ready state. Let's say it was on a Friday. And then mm-hmm. that was like on a Friday, and Kelly was like, hey, so... <laughs> you were done by Kelly's Monday. like, hey, why aren't we done with this? Like, why, you know, like, why haven't we just, you know, <laughs> yeah. done this rebrand? I was like, hey, Kelly, there's this thing in the world. It's called details. And you have to know uh-huh. about them. But yeah, I mean, we we went through that process and it was even longer than 14 months. And wow, we learned a lot mm-hmm. and it was painful, but it was also so worth it. Like one of the best decisions yeah. we've ever made. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think that it could be a lot easier, a lot faster if you don't already have an established mm-hmm. business, an we've established too, brand. Yeah. But man, you got email flows, you got a website, you got customers who know you as one thing and now you're telling them you're something else. Like that is a big intensive process. But we were fortunate in that about midway through that process, I can't remember if I told you guys about this, you probably heard about it one way or another, but we basically got stood up at the altar on our wedding day in our first venture-backed fundraise that was supposed to close in early October. And that was a multi-million dollar fundraise. It was the first time that we were going to be fully funded the way that we really needed to, and I think deserved to. And we got totally screwed at the last minute. The same week that the money was supposed to hit the bank, the fund backed out for no good reason after all this time and energy and dollars were spent getting the deal done. So that was a moment for us where with all parts of the business, including this rebrand, I was forced, really forced to ask myself, okay, if I were doing this from scratch, all over again, knowing what I know now, what would this look like? The answers were kind of uncomfortable sometimes. Uh, Had implications on the team, had implications on the business model, had implications on the branding. But man, even though that was a painful exercise to go through at the time, that's something that I'm very, very enthusiastic about, just doing on a regular basis, hopefully outside of different crises, because it's so important to ask yourself, all right, Knowing what I know now, not the me of 10 years ago, but all this schooling that I've gone through with respect to growing this brand, what if I were doing this from scratch? And then kind of surprise yourself every now and then, I think. And for us, it was, all right, this brand needs to look a lot different. It needs to do the liquid justice. And we need to move forward with this as planned. Wait, wait. Did I just come up with a new drink called Liquid Justice? Is that what you just said? <laughs> Ooh, I like that. Oh, liquid Justice. Uh, that is really an amazing self-reflection exercise, whether it was forced on you or not. I think that's, Juliet and I talk to other small business owners and all the time, until you're there, until you're responsible for the health insurance, the people you love and work with every day, like it's a real thing and it's gritty and gnarly and it always feels like you're taking a lot of hits. We read the book Shoe Dog and- uh, Oh, great. And I recommend it to anyone who wants to start a little business like Nike and you'll realize right. how touch and go and tenuous and gnarly right. and the thousands upon thousands of decisions it takes and totally. the fortitude and sort of belief and like, I like what I'm doing. And and one of the reasons I brought that up is that Juliet and I, you know, I think read that book and we're like, okay, we're not crazy. <laughs> and simultaneously, <laughs> it really crystallized for us that we want to do work with people that we really like. Mm-hmm. That has mm-hmm. to be part of this thing, right? Like, yes, it'd be mm-hmm. nice to mm-hmm. retire one day, but really, mm-hmm. I think is a core value for us is that we get to work. You know, our staff is insane. You know, we like the people we work. We like the day to day sort of mm-hmm. aspects of it, and you have to have that satisfaction there because, as you saw, totally, you can lose yourself in this the story of growth, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden you've lost this. You know, a decade of your life. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. And that, that was, it's funny you say that because when I look back at the decision to leave my day job and go into something as uncertain, shaky, rattling as creating a drink, that was a big part of it. Because I remember doing the math around how, like what percent of my waking hours, not total hours, but my waking conscious hours are spent at work versus you know how i want to be spending them outside of work and i was not really happy with you know my lack of ability to control who i worked with or the types of people around me at work 
And I did that math and it was something like 70 or 80% of my waking hours, including the weekends, were spent working. And I was working by and large with people who, you know, some people I loved, but a lot of people I didn't. And I was just like, you know what? That doesn't make any sense. I'm spending 70, 80% of my time, you know, with people who I don't love all of them. And some of them I really don't love. (laughs) And I would much rather be able to kind of curate who I spend my time with in my waking hours. You know, yeah, I think that's again, big. It's sometimes easier said than done, but it's so important, right? It's so important. And it makes all these struggles and challenges so much more meaningful if you can do it in the trenches with people you love. And that's what I, what I feel really proud of it at O2 is who we've put on the team and how we work together. It's awesome. The other thing I just wanted to make a fine point about that you mentioned that we share with you is the idea of starting a business while you keep your day job. And that is something Mm -hmm. I'm a huge fan of. And it could just be because I'm a financially kind of conservative person. So I'm willing to take risk, but up to a point. And, you know, when we started our business, we already had kids and, you know, we were hoping to buy a house. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, we didn't have family money or family support or anything. So, you know, we needed to sort of figure out how we could take as much risk as possible but yep. not too much risk so that we would get ourselves into right. any, some kind of trouble, right? And so it worked so right. well for us both. You know, we sort of did it in two waves where Kelly left his physical therapy yeah. practice and then I left my law practice. But I mean, we had a lot mm-hmm. of years where we were doing both things. And I look back and mm-hmm. it's like, I don't even know if we did that consciously. I don't think we felt like we had a choice to do it any other way. We felt mm-hmm. like we had to mm-hmm. do it that mm-hmm. way. But I look back and I'm so grateful for that choice we made because we were really able in some ways to grow our business and do the right thing for the right reason, do the right thing for the right reason Mm -hmm. and grow organically and learn and take Mm -hmm. some early risks that if I, you know, I think if we'd started with a business plan and raise money and sort of did it the more traditional way, we would have, it just wouldn't have been such a nice ride. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that that gives you a little bit more freedom and flexibility in your decision-making. I mean, there's so, there's so many external pressures on you all the time as an entrepreneur, that the last thing you need is internal pressures around, you know, being able to pay rent or your mortgage (laughs) or whatever, like that, keeping one foot in the day job door alleviates that until you know, it's a prudent decision to really go all in. And that's, you know, I kind of, I teach that concept to a degree at CU Boulder, in that you want to be damn sure that people who aren't your friends and family would be willing to give you money for whatever product or service you're offering before you truly go all in all in on it. Imagine that, right? So we've talked about it a little bit, but could you just give more backstory on how it came to pass that you were teaching a class at the business school at CU? And what's Man, it called? Yeah. What are you doing? I mean, I know it's on entrepreneurship. You, but- they'll, they'll lend anyone in there. So I came to Boulder about two years ago, and I just happened to have a decent network of people out here And so one of the things that I shared with a friend of mine who's really well-networked is that I had a desire to kind of get back in the classroom. One of my very early mentors in college was a guy named Jay Dial, and he taught this incredible course that I just got so much out of. And I subsequently was a TA for him. I loved doing that. And since I'd started O2... I'd done some guest lecturing at OSU when I was still living in Columbus. I love that and teaching and coaching and leading. I think all these things have a lot in common. And so I really just enjoyed being able to share my, you know, a lot of times my failures and my mistakes with other people in an effort to help them avoid doing the same thing. And so I was invited to guest lecture at CU Boulder in one of their MBA classes by the program director of the entrepreneurship program. And he really enjoyed, you know, what I had to say. He and I had a lot in common. He was also an operator. Then I was invited back and then I did some stuff for the undergrad program. And before I knew it, I was an assistant teacher last semester. And then this semester has been my first experience leading the class, which has been a hell of a ride for sure. And what has surprised you the most about working with students? Besides the fact that they'll let anyone do this, it feels like, you know, it hasn't been a ton of surprises. It has been a ton of work for sure. And, you know, I joke about the quality of instructors outside of me. It's a really established high caliber group of people who are teaching these classes. And there's a good amount of structure that's kind of suggested to you by the program, but they also make it very clear 
that, hey, you're the CEO of your own classroom. You can do whatever you want. So I, I structured this in a way that I wish I would have gone through when I was doing undergrad, which was make it as practical as possible. And this is why you're coaching there and teaching there, by the way. <laughs> I like to think so. I mean, at this point, I feel like I knew a thing or two about the subject material. But I, I started the class with just a lecture on the importance of culture and teamwork and the type of environment that we were going to have in that class. And this is no longer a class, but it's a team. And then the team uh, broke out into 10 teams, five to six people each, and started working on an actual business plan for either a product or a service over the course of the semester. And our final, so to speak, was a Shark Tank-like presentation by these 10 teams where they all got up and did a five-minute pitch in front of a a group of local venture capitalists that I invited in to judge them. And they all did just, they all did so great. And there are some real businesses in this class. I'm like, guys, if you want to make this happen, man, I'll I'll help you fundraise a little (laughs) bit. So it was just a really cool experience, you know? You feel like this is one of those things where um, it's so gnarly being an entrepreneur. You're like, come be an entrepreneur with me because then you can see how gnarly my life is. <laughs> like, you feel, no. no, no. In fact, I feel like I'd talk him out of it. <laughs> no, we, I don't even remember being entrepreneur savvy. We had friends who had businesses in college. I had a lot of small businesses, you know, mowing lawns, fixing bikes, things like that. Mm-hmm. My whole life, I always kind of did something like that. And then we started teaching kayaking and guiding and that was so resource intensive. I couldn't even imagine starting that own business ourselves. Do you feel like, so none of my friends in college, like I think sometimes I I dream about going back and which 50 businesses I would start in college, right? Things Mm -hmm, that exist mm -hmm. now, small, you know, commodity items. Yeah. Do you feel like there's a awareness change? Like the internet has brought out the influencer entrepreneur, like kids really see that this is a a viable alternative to go working for a big company. Because I know our daughter already has worked for, the local pool you know system. Dave is a subscriber. I know. I am. I just had one of those puppies <laughs> earlier today, by the way. Thank you. George's Bake Shop, shout out. And your feedback to G has been really important. But um, Good. also, she realized that if she took risk, had her own thing. Yeah, we didn't really even have that as part of our, like, we didn't think it was a thing. No, but no, here is our really daughter who's like, it. oh, there's an alternative to having a part-time job. It's I create my own business. Mm-hmm. And have a different life. And she sometimes is baking late and it's not But early. I do, you know, I know you're trying to ask Dave mm-hmm. a question, but I do think the barrier to entry is so much lower in part because mm-hmm. of simple things like Shopify. Like Georgia could go on mm-hmm. and totally. create totally. in 10 minutes on her own, create a Shopify site right. and with a little bit of help, right. a website and be able to accept credit cards. I mean, there's certain things from a technology standpoint that have lowered the barrier of entry so much that right. it's relatively right. easy right. To, get, to, like, to get something very small started anyway. That's true. I mean, just those yeah. early credit card machines that took so much of our overhead away. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Do you see that the kids are just sort of more prepared to be young business owners and entrepreneurs than, say, our generation? I don't know. I've got mixed thoughts on that. So, Juliet, you asked one of the things, or if there's anything that has surprised me about the students a few moments ago. And one thing that did surprise me is. A lot of these kids did not think of themselves as entrepreneurs. Mm. So if you were to pull the class out of 50 some kids and say, how many of you, you know, are entrepreneurs or have done something entrepreneurial in the past, maybe five to seven hands shot up. And this is something we did towards the end of class. But I had to remind them because one of the other things we did towards the beginning of class was I just had them fill out a little worksheet and asked, have you ever done anything entrepreneurial or have you ever had a little business? And so many of them had done a lemonade stand or lawn mowing service or graphic design service for friends or whatever. So many of them had done something where some stranger gave them money for a product or a service, right? And that's entrepreneurship. Like that's definitely categorized. That falls into, you know, what we're talking about. But many of them didn't think of themselves as entrepreneurs. And I think that part of that has to do with the fact that, yeah, barriers to entry are so low to getting into this. It takes 10 minutes to set up a Shopify store. You know, It takes 10 minutes to put up a Facebook ad. But at the same time, I think the younger generations see so many people 
who are just Instagram killing it online, that it becomes a little bit intimidating to want to put yourself out there unless, you know, you're a Kardashian. I can relate to that. Or, yeah. you know, so yeah. I don't know is the, yeah. is the short answer to that question. Yeah, I mean, I feel mixed about it. I had a friend's kid who graduated from high school a few years ago, and he said to me, you know, it's so cool. 80% of the graduating class of my school, the kids want to go into entrepreneurship. And the sort of Mm. skeptical part of me was like, yeah, except for it's probably only appropriate for like 2% of people, right? Because to me at the (laughs) core of it is a lot of grit and resilience and work pain tolerance and, you know, definitely debunking the idea that it's a lifestyle kind of job. I think that's right. But yeah, I mean, it is interesting that a lot of those students, even though they're in a formal business program, don't have that Mm -hmm. view of themselves. It's interesting. Yeah. You got to know how to take a punch for sure, (laughs) you know, because there are many of them that will be had. Dave, we're such O2 fans. And I just want to say, everyone, grab the caffeine-free lime, dump it in a blender with some ice in the summer. It is my go-to like in a, the sauna. A savior. It is that thing. I come back from a ride and my body core temperature, because my surface to volume ratio is it's like 1 million degrees. 1 million degrees. And I start <laughs> fantasizing right. about the slushy O2 lime on the way down. And literally, there's oh, so dude. many times where I'm like, oh. I can just get over this hill. I'm on the way down to the slushy O2 lime. Not to mention you theoretically could add some tequila to it and it would also be lovely. Theoretically. T-O2, theoretically, I mean, you wouldn't about endorse that. that. You wouldn't endorse anything about that. Not. Okay, of course so. not. <laughs> Where can people, you sell right to consumers. Dude, we do. You can drop get drop shipped to your house, which is so fun. I love that. Oh, yeah. Where do people find out about O2 and sort of, also go along with this ride of let's create an alternative to big sugar mm-hmm. soda. Let's get an alternative and get rid of every plastic bottle on the planet. I mean, really yeah. the core mission. I think it's so amazing. Where can people be part of that? I think drinko2.com is a pretty good place to start. And, you know, we're two weeks out or two weeks past having done this rebrand. So still getting a few kinks ironed out. The blog will be coming soon, I'm sure. But drinko2.com uh, you can also buy O2 on Amazon. And then we're doing some fun stuff on, on our Instagram and TikTok, which is O2 Hydration. And then before we let you go, what are you looking forward to either personally or professionally? Oh, man, that's such a good question. Honestly, so I've got like, I don't know, five to seven more papers to grade <laughs> to get this semester done with. So I'm really looking forward to being done with that personally and professionally. <laughs> awesome. Dave, it was so fun to see you and chat you up. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, it was great spending time with you guys. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it! 